From the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, this is BPR News Presents The Porch. I'm Matt Bush, and I'll guide you through the next hour. The weather this month in western North Carolina has shifted between cold and dreary, or been both at the same time. That could certainly be a drag in non-pandemic times, much less 11 months into one. So we've put together a show that will take you out of the current moment and into the future of our region and state. Later, we discuss North Carolina's economy for the rest of the decade and how what's happening right now may and may not have any effect on it. Then we learn more about education justice. But first, have you gone trout fishing during the pandemic to take your mind off what's going on? Well, you weren't alone. Trout fishing businesses saw a boom last year, but there were other parts of the industry in western North Carolina that felt the pinch, according to Emma Johnson. She's the Climate Science Fellow at the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. I spoke with her over Zoom about her most recent reporting, which looks at how the pandemic is affecting trout in western North Carolina, but really focuses on its most dangerous predator, climate change. The trout industry in North Carolina is an enormous business for the state. Um, in uh, just the western part of the region, which is where mountain trout uh, live and are stocked, uh, it in 2014 was estimated to be worth $383 million. And that number is definitely higher now, especially uh, after 2020 and the coronavirus pandemic uh, first hit. So it is an enormous industry for the state. And I was really looking at how climate change affects multiple parts of this industry. So I was looking at the people who are raising trout to stock rivers and ponds for sport fishing. So that's uh, looking at the state hatcheries for the Wildlife Resource Commission, um, who are stocking a lot of waters in the western part of the state for people to fish. I was also looking at the um, eastern band of the Cherokee Indians, uh, who have a hatchery to stock the waters on their land. And then as well as many of the smaller private farms that exist uh, that stock their own ponds for people to come and fish. So I was looking at the, stock, uh, the sport fishing industry and then there is a whole nother section of the trout industry with farms where people are raising fish to sell to restaurants and retailers, such as restaurants all across the United States and grocery stores. Um, you know, examples, Sunburst Trout Farms or Carolina Mountain. And then the third part is uh, all the people who work in trout in other ways. So guides, fly fishing guides, people who take people out onto the water to catch trout, any other folks who work in outdoor recreation who make their living uh, with tourism where people want to come and fish. And so I was looking at all the different parts of this industry and how climate change is uh, really changing a lot of aspects of their lives. So let's get into that. First, we'll start. We'll talk about prior to March of last year, how much of climate change began to affect this industry that is very vital to this region and is a drawing card, not just for the people who work here, but it is also a destination point like so many things in Western North Carolina for people to come and visit to take part in. Yeah, climate change is a really interesting topic when we're discussing Western North Carolina. Um, I think it came up in my reporting a lot how people actually viewed Western North Carolina as a place that was uh, pretty 
um, immune to some of the worst effects of climate change, actually. So especially when you're looking at rising sea levels on the coast or extreme wildfires that are happening out west, uh, Western North Carolina doesn't really have uh, a lot of uh, those extreme weather events in the same way. But it would be a mistake to think that climate change isn't happening in the region because, as we know, it's happening all across the country. And in Western North Carolina, it, what it really is going to mean for the state is more days a year that are hotter. It's going to mean more intense storms, more rain, more precipitation as a whole. Uh, likely less snow. And so all of these things are going to add together um, to actually make it much more difficult for trout to survive um, in a lot of different ways. Uh, so trout are a fish that can only survive in cold, clear water. And when it's not cold and clear and full of oxygen, they get stressed in, and in the ways that people get stressed when we're uh, not eating well or have a lack of sleep um, in ways that is damaging to our immune systems, trout feel the same way. So if it's too hot in the waters, they get stressed and uh, they are actually more prone to disease, are uh, not as resilient to change and um, can die because of it. So there are lots of different ways that the climate crisis is affecting trout and it's all these different effects um, that climate change is predicted to bring to the state uh, is does not really bode well for uh, the trout as a whole. Right. Your reporting cites a, a report from last year from the State Institute for Climate Science that says in 40 years, by the year 2060, uh, Western North Carolina will see 10 to 20 more days a year where temperatures are above 90 degrees. And that by at that same time, the annual hottest and coldest temperatures will increase three to five degrees. So you mentioned it there how this is bad for trout because they thrive in colder waters. So one of the places you went to was Sunburst Trout Farms, one of the places you reported at, uh, and that is in Haywood County. Their flagship farm is below Lake Logan in Haywood County. So tell us about what you found out there. Yeah, Sunburst was a really fascinating place uh, because in so many ways, they are such a sustainable business. You know, they are pulling water out of the lake, out of the bottom third of the lake, which is um, usually uh, colder and doesn't have uh, the same temperature fluctuations that you may be able to see at the top of the lake. And, you know, they return the water to the river after they use it. Um, but uh, there's a lot of times uh, when that farm, uh, that they have below Lake Logan is um, just not the most suitable conditions for trout. And when you're growing trout, even a few degrees change in the water temperature makes all the difference. You know, trout um, ideally thrive at around 58, 60 degrees Fahrenheit. So um, the small differences in water temperature make a huge impact on the productivity efficiency of a farm. So if you're thinking, um, the difference between 67 degrees and 70 degrees of the water could mean the difference between life and death for the fish that you have. And so what they saw at Sunburst is in the summer, sometimes it would, even though they're pulling water from the bottom third of the lake, uh, it can still be too warm to have uh, as good a production of trout as they would like to fulfill all their supply needs. And so one thing that Sunburst is doing is actually leasing out multiple farms in addition to their main farm 
um, that are with properties at different elevations so they can actually be trying to chase that coldest water. So they've leased a farm that's further up in the mountains than their property at Lake Logan, which they can use primarily during the summer months when it may become too warm to produce enough uh, fish or really sustain the numbers of fish they need uh, during the summer at their main farm. So um, even though in a lot of ways it's a really sustainable operation over at Sunburst, they're still being affected by changes in the climate that um, can be really hard to control. And, you know, they're always looking at different ways that they can address that. You also focused on the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians and you spoke to their tribal hatchery supervisor and talked to some of the hatchery, went to some of the hatchery facilities and see what was going on at those places. So tell us what those hatchery facilities are first and then what you've discovered there. Yeah, so the Eastern Band of the Cherokee Indians runs one hatchery to support the stocking of their rivers and streams. And it is an incredibly important business for the Eastern Band. So the fishing industry, they've estimated, is valued at about $25 million, which makes it the second largest single industry uh, for the Eastern Band, um, second only to the casino business. And so it makes fishing incredibly important. And it's not just important for the economics. It's also so important for Cherokee culture and traditions and community building. So it is really such an important, uh, an important business for the, for the Cherokee. Um, and because it's so important and because they only have one facility right now, it's really critical that they're able to produce the amount of fish that they need in order to stock uh, their streams and rivers, because this money is coming from fishing permits that people buy to come and fish on their waters. So if they a huge disaster strikes and they're not able to stock the rivers and ponds on Cherokee land, that will be an enormous hit because people likely won't uh, be coming to buy fishing permits. So, you know, I think an example of when that really hit Cherokee was in the summer and fall of 2016, when, you know, of course, there were enormous fires over in Tennessee, but it was also uh, a year of enormous drought for uh, the Western North Carolina region. So, you know, across the entire region, uh, there's far less rain than usual. Uh, most parts of the region were seeing six inches less of rain um, than they usually would. Asheville was having its driest autumn in 123 years of recorded data history. So it was an incredibly dry fall. And what that means for trout is, or what it meant for the Eastern Band is the water, the river where they pull water from for their hatchery was running so low that they weren't able to divert enough water from the river to supply all of the raceways that are in the hatchery. So they ended up having to close 40% of their channels, uh, which cost them thousands of fish. Um, and it was also, because the water level was so low, the temperatures were also climbing in, in the river, the river itself, which, as I mentioned before, stresses fish out, um, can be really bad for them. One of the hatchery managers I talked to was describing how he was watching trout just die right there in the river because the water level was so low and the water was so warm. And, you know, he and other folks at Cherokee had never seen anything like that. Um, and the hardest part about this with this loss is that 
trout are also a slow growing fish. So it takes um, over a year to grow a trout from an egg or a small fish to what's considered, you know, market size or stocking size, which is about one pound. And so if you lose thousands of fish in a, in an autumn, it's takes incredibly long time to build that back up. And, uh, you know, for the Cherokee who, uh, the Eastern band who need trout in order to make an enormous part of their uh, income for the tribe in order to remain independent, it can be incredibly devastating when something like that happens. So let's say the water temperatures go to these levels over the next 40 years. What's going to happen to the what's going to happen to the trout, and then what's going to happen to the industry itself? Yeah, I think it's going to require a lot of flexibility from the industry to figure out how to adapt to these different changes. You know, I think a lot of the rivers that are stocked right now all across Western North Carolina, most of them tend to be at lower elevations. So it's going to be work from the scientists and other folks stocking to see what rivers are going to be able to sustain trout populations, whether it's just for stocking purposes or for wild purposes. Because if even if you're stocking trout, which, you know, usually maybe they're just in there for a week at most because people come and fish them. But if the waters are so warm that when you put trout in, they die right away. I mean, that is going to be good for nobody. So um, it will probably require a shifting of what waters can be stocked for trout. Um, on the hatchery side, for people who are farming and raising trout, you know, I think it's going to take some uh, advancements in hatchery technology to assess what can be done to protect the fish while they're growing in the raceways. Um, because it's a pretty confined environment as the fish are growing in these channels, and they have to be there, as I said, a long time to get uh, from, you know, small fingerling size to one pound fish. So I think advances such as alarm systems when water level may be uh, getting low so that uh, hatchery managers can come close gates and recirculate water until conditions improve or even things uh, as simple as adding shading so that the direct sun isn't hitting trout. All of those little things to even lower temperature, water temperatures, just a few degrees will make all the difference in the world when it comes to uh, raising, raising trout. I think um, looking at the wild trout side, especially for the brook trout, which is Western North Carolina's only native trout species, um, it will be critical to do other things to protect the habitats where they live, you know? So even though temperatures are predicted to rise in the region, it doesn't necessarily mean that water temperatures have to uh, soar along with that, you know? So things like uh, canopy cover over rivers is incredibly important. Uh, improving stream bakes, all of these things that help improve trout habitat will also help them be more resilient to warming temperatures. So this time last year, we knew the crisis that was climate change and the impact it was having on our region and our world. Then COVID-19 started to show up in the United States around this time. So what impact has COVID-19 had on the trout industry in Western North Carolina? It's not uh, maybe as clear as what you just were able to paint for all of us with the impact climate change is having on the fish. But what impact is COVID-19 having on the fish? It's been, I think, a really interesting year um, to when I was looking at uh, the impacts of COVID-19 because I was expecting going into this that it would have been negative uh, for the trout industry all around. But 
In fact, uh, when I talk to a lot of people who work on the outdoor recreation side of things, uh, so anybody who's working in the sport fishing uh, part of this industry, any of the fishing guides, um, they were all talking about how it was uh, their busiest year ever. And so really we're seeing people from all across North Carolina, all over the country, we're coming to Western North Carolina to get outside. You know, I think one of the biggest things we saw last year was how important outdoor spaces are and how much people value the opportunities to get outdoors. And especially as people were working remotely, a lot of people, I think, were coming to Western North Carolina in order to do that and taking advantage of what we know are incredible uh, outdoor spaces to get outside and recreate. And, and one of the things that people were doing was going fishing. So uh, a lot of people I talked to uh, were saying that they had seen their highest permit sales, high, highest fishing permit sales that they'd ever seen. Uh, they, you know, fishing guides were talking about how they were booked up, you know, for months in advance. So a lot of people actually had a really a great year business-wise when it came to trout fishing. But on the opposite side of that, for the farms that are working and selling to restaurants and retailers, they definitely took a big hit during this time. So Sunburst Trout Farms, again, as an example, you know, their primary um, people that they're selling to are people in the restaurant business. And, you know, Wes, uh, the, one of the sources uh, who I talked to talked uh, with me about how there's some restaurants that he hasn't sold a piece of fish to since March, you know, because the restaurants just aren't opening and, you know, they've definitely taken a huge hit to their sales. And, you know, especially as indoor dining in the capacities that we saw in the past are still going to, are still a long ways off into returning to what we saw, you know, they're not expecting to get back to pre-pandemic levels of sales until that happens. So it could, you know, still be years for them before they recover from the hits they've taken. So it's actually been some pretty extremely uh, opposing differences in how different parts of the trout industry have responded to COVID-19. Might there be a lasting impact from COVID-19 on trout and the industry here? You mentioned a lot of people visiting here, uh, coming to uh, as tourists as they always seem to do, and that was very popular, obviously, in the last year. Saw more people moving to the area, too, sort of as a way to get away from larger areas uh, where they may, may have felt that the, the transmission of the virus was more, um, more possible. So is there a long-term impact on the industry from what has happened and the and the trout, is there going to be a long-term impact from COVID-19 on both? You know, I think that's a really interesting question because, you know, I think it's could go in a lot of different ways. Um, I think that the interest in outdoor recreation is not going to go away. I think now that that boom, that push has happened uh, and I saw a lot of people coming out onto the water, I think that's only going to keep growing, especially if uh, the transition to remote work becomes more permanent um, and other people just realize what the opportunities are to do outdoor recreation in Western North Carolina. I think that's only going to keep growing. And in a lot of ways, that's really good for the region because it brings in a lot of money. It brings in people who boost up tourism. You know, I would say for looking again at the Eastern band, uh, you know, that additional increase in people coming for tourism it will be really great for their economy. 
But I think on the opposing side of that and then connecting back to climate change, it also just puts more pressure on the hatcheries who are raising trout to stock um, to be able to do that effectively. So uh, if you're looking at the Eastern Band, who at the moment only have one hatchery, you know, if another disaster like the 2016 droughts come again and there's all this even greater interest and pressure for people to want to come and fish uh, on Eastern Band uh, lands, I think that would be then an even greater disaster for them just because there is so much interest and pressure on that industry. So thinking about ways that the hatcheries can continue to be resilient against environmental change will be incredibly important as they continue to support this growing industry that definitely has been fueled by uh, COVID-19. Well, terrific. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, I think, you know, one thing that really struck me when I was doing this reporting is, you know, I was looking at trout mostly at how it was connecting to people's livelihoods, thinking about jobs and the economy in the sense of what it's doing for the state or for the region or for like for the Eastern band for a group of people. Um, But one of the things that really struck me when I talked to a lot of sources is uh, what trout means to people on a personal level. And I thought that was just so moving and meaningful. So, you know, a lot of people talk to me about um, the memories with their grandparents or their parents who took them out onto the river for the first time to fish and what it meant to them to be able to do that. Um, A lot of folks also talked to me about seeing trout as a way to uh, value the environment and conservation of these natural spaces. As I mentioned before, you know, trout can only live in cold, clear waters. And so having trout in a river is a really good indication of uh, a healthy stream, a healthy ecosystem, because it means that um, it's cold enough uh, to support trout. It's healthy enough to support the uh, animals that trout feed on. Um, It's you know, clear water. And so a lot of people also talked about the beauty of getting out into beautiful spaces and to enjoy the natural environment and conservation and just valuing the world around them. You know, especially also talking to folks um, at the Eastern Band, you know, I heard a lot about how important trout are for community building amongst tribal members, especially uh, intergenerational community building and caring for those who um, aren't able to come out to the river by bringing them fish and just the importance of fish to the Cherokee peoples for centuries now. Um, It was really um, fascinating and heartwarming to learn how important trout are for making memories and community building and conservation and all these other things that are more than the job, but um, really matter to why people are why people are doing this work. That's Emma Johnson, the Climate Science Fellow at the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. You can find links to her reporting through our free mobile app or at our website, bpr.org. After a short break, we take a look at North Carolina's economy for the rest of the decade. Stay with us here on The Porch. This is BPR News Presents The Porch, a production of the BPR News Team. I'm Matt Bush.
How much will the pandemic affect North Carolina's economy for the rest of the decade? A study out of Western Carolina University's Center for the Study of Free Enterprise believes probably not that much. Dr. Edward Lopez is the head of the center. He and graduate student Emma Blair Fettison at George Mason University joined me on Zoom to talk about the study, which uses economic freedom as its baseline, which I had them explain to start our chat. You know, as we base in our study economic freedom, we trace back to Adam Smith and his origins with the wealth of nations. Um, at its very core, it's the ability of individuals to pursue their own interests without undue burdens or um, coercion by the government. Um, I think Smith defines it as a system of natural liberty. I think that's a good way to look at it. That's the uh, sort of conceptual way, which is right. Where the rubber hits the road and households are trying to improve, you know, their situation for themselves and for their families, they need some leeway. They need some leeway to make their own economic decisions, their own economic decisions on, do I continue going to school? Do I invest in this company? Do I quit the job and do a startup? Do I try to get a better job and maybe a career move? All of these decisions, and many of them like it, are what we're talking about with economic freedom. Do people have the leeway to make those decisions on their own? What I found interesting about the study is you don't really have policy recommendations for this. You're really just talking about sort of conditions. So tell us about that, um, how the study really just looks at conditions. It doesn't really look at, doesn't offer any policy suggestions uh, for, for at any level, local, state, or federal. Well, I would say, um, you know, building an environment of economic freedom, we look at the conditions for that. I there aren't specific policy recommendations because we are looking with a long-term approach from both the bottom up and top down. But I do think there are very practical implications when you consider an environment of economic freedom. One of those being trying to prevent undue burdens in the sense of occupational regulations. Other things in North Carolina include um, the insurance industry is very heavily regulated. Different things like that, while you know we may not lay out specific policy recommendations, they have very practical steps that North Carolina can take to create more of a, a conducive environment for success and prosperity. My approach to this question is we, we can we can think about the, the short-term pressing needs of households and families in the state, and there's a lot of economic hardship. But we also have to ask about what are the long-term potential for growth and prosperity in this state? This is something that our state leaders have identified as top priorities. And this is something that economics can tell us a lot about. Economics can tell us about the conditions under which growth and prosperity tend to occur compared to when they don't. We might not have specific policy prescriptions in this study, such as, for example, should you allow restaurants to operate at 30% or 50%. But those are short-term uh, decisions that will only be loosely related to the long-term prosperity of the state. And in order for that to happen, our approach is we need a strong top-down capacity which is achieved by fiscal discipline in the General Assembly. We also need a good climate for, of economic health, which is achieved by allowing people to have the leeway over their own economic lives. You have a graph within this that looks at economic freedom, comparing North Carolina to its neighboring states. And I think this might be a little even more acute for where we are in Western North Carolina, because we are boxed in by three states who are an hour or less away from, from this particular region. So um, let's discuss that first. What did you find? Where does North Carolina rank as far as economic freedom and how does it 
in our area of the state in the western part, how does North Carolina rank against its neighbors, Tennessee, South Carolina, and Georgia? The good news is that North Carolina tends to rank above the national average and in the last decade has gone from something like the low 20s to around number 11 in the country. What this means is that economic freedom has been increasing in the state of North Carolina over the decade, and that has put us in a better situation coming into the pandemic than we would be otherwise. In comparison to some neighboring states, uh, Tennessee and Georgia do rank above North Carolina, South Carolina, which is probably the state of North Carolina and just naturally gets compared to the most. Right. It does rank much better than South Carolina. Tell us why about it. Tell us why that is. North Carolina ranks better than South Carolina because North Carolina's budget is in better condition after a decade of fiscal discipline. North Carolina is not ranked as high as Tennessee and Virginia and Georgia because North Carolina regulates occupations and markets such as insurance and alcohol and gasoline more so than and Georgia, Tennessee, and Virginia. So going forward, you said North Carolina looks poised to do well going forward. Your your study really looks at a lot of long-term, long-term factors. So tell us, the pandemic here, we will eventually come out of this. Not sure when, but we will eventually come out of this. So let's say if we were having the discussion 10 years from now, what might we be discussing in 10 years? I think our, our long-term prescriptions, certainly we see North Carolina faring well. Um, I do think that's very contingent. contingent on um, maintaining that fiscal discipline that's put them in this good position coming into the pandemic. Uh, When we compare North Carolina going into the Great Recession in 2007, 2008, and their position now, we see how much that's benefited them. I think, you know, 10 years from now, ideally, we're going to see that they've maintained that and that they have built up the reserves that have been going into the pandemic and that have been so key. Other than that, I'd say 10 years from now, you'd hope to see North Carolina continuing to build on that climate of economic freedom while the state ranks pretty well in comparison to both the national average and their neighboring states, there's certainly room for improvement. Um, occupational regulations are one, certificate of need laws is another, and then in certain markets, like Ed mentioned, um, gasoline, alcohol, and the insurance markets, there's definitely room for improvement there. And ideally, 10 years from now, we'll see that happening. Are there specifics you can talk about with some of those industries that you're talking about the regulations there? And I want to bring up specifically alcohol, because I think of the three that you mentioned, that probably has the most bipartisan chance of support for changing. So you can you talk a bit about the regulations that you're saying there that you say uh, have North Carolina behind some of its neighbors? So that um, that uh, gets us kind of uh, at the stepping off point from this study to, which is a general one, um, to some uh, subsequent studies, which are going to be more specific ones. There's this reciprocity organization where if you're licensed as an EMT in Texas, you can work as one in Virginia and so forth, so long as the state buys in, right? Well, North Carolina hasn't opted in yet. And there's a couple of occupations that are like that in the medical professions. So, for example, on Wednesday, the center released a new study on the way that emergency medical professionals are trained and regulated in the state. The thing is, with the pandemic, the nature of their work is very different. They're not just responding to single isolated incidents. They're not just responding to big incidents where uh, EMTs from other areas can come in and help uh, the EMTs where the big incident is. This is an incident that happens everywhere. It's a mass casualty incident. For North Carolina's emergency medical professionals to respond better to this mass casualty incident, they need better preparation and they need a little bit more leeway. They need a little bit more leeway in the activities and responses and uh, functions that they perform in the field. Um, Currently, they have more capacity to do those beneficial things than the state is allowing them to do. 
And you do say this is a bit of a regulation where, you know, or certification, I guess, maybe not regulation, but a bit of a certification issue too. Can you say something about that? The best situation is when the certification process at the state matches best with the profession's ability to serve the people. And here, the regulations have a little bit of catching up to do because the pandemic has changed the nature of emergency medical professionals' work. You also talk a lot in this study about top-down versus bottom-up, and we can get to that bit of an example of what that might mean right now. Uh, Governor Cooper this month signed a COVID relief bill at the state level, President Biden and Congress going through a, a COVID relief bill in D.C., that would be what you would consider top-down. You looked at a lot of bottom-up. So tell us the difference, I guess, in the terms of what you looked in the study, what top-down to bottom-up may look like to people, and what may help top-down and bottom-up. Over the next decade, the economy will experience additional shocks, possibly not as big as the coronavirus pandemic. But those shocks, we're going to have to respond to them. The better we're able to respond to them, the better condition our economy will be in the future. Our study looks at both the top-down responses to those shocks, things like relief measures and stimulus uh, bills, but we also focus on what is paid too little attention, which is all of the bottom-up forces that are necessary for an economy to recover from a major shock such as the pandemic. Those bottom-up forces do better in climates of good economic health. Those bottom-up forces have more leeway in conditions of more economic freedom, and those conditions are going to lead to more growth and prosperity like our state leaders say they want. Can you give us some examples of what those conditions would be? So the examples fall into how we regulate occupations in the state, and they also fall into how we regulate consumer markets in the state. In each of these instances, we have to weigh the public interest, the safety, the well-being of the people of the state against the freedom of the individual to enter that profession or to participate in that consumer market. And what we say in our study is that there are lots of areas where a regulation is limiting economic freedom, but it doesn't appear to be serving any other purpose, where a regulation is limiting people's economic leeway, but it's not really serving this greater public purpose to the people of North Carolina. Those are the areas where policymakers ought to be exercising scrutiny uh, for the betterment of the state. Maybe more than some of the other economic shocks or downturns that we've seen in previous uh, decades, previous years, this one seems to have a far more personal toll on people because it is a public health emergency. So how does that fit into to what you looked at? Yeah, I mean, I think COVID certainly does have, it's a more personal and in a lot of cases, a more emotional shock to the system than, say, the Great Recession or, or past shocks for good reason. Um, you know, our, 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 our focus in the study is long term and we do look at both top-down and bottom-up conditions that are more long-term. So it may be um, somewhat detached from those personal conditions, but I would say regardless, you look at the industries that have been impacted. So the hospitality industry, restaurant workers, all of those employees, the, the conditions that are gonna get those people back to work are gonna be the conditions that allow entrepreneurs to pursue their interests and hire those people. So, you know, you consider the, the personal impacts of that. And this has a very tangible effect. The study has a very tangible connection to, um, I would say, the personal nature of this shock. It's hard to add to that. Economic health is personal health. Anything specific to the Western region? I know there's been, you've done some studies, but to, to Western North Carolina and specifically talking a bit about that, talking about the entrepreneurialism of this, talking about the hospitality industry, the tourism industry, the outdoor recreation industry, um, 
there aren't the major corporations in this area as there are maybe in other parts of North Carolina and Asheville itself being a very nonprofit driven economy also. So how does that fit into what you looked at? Well, take this with a grain of salt because I am not a native North Carolinian like Ed is. Um, you know, I would say Asheville and other parts of the Western area really depend on these industries that have been hit hard by COVID and um, in terms of the hospitality industry, you know, just in my time that I spent in Nashville, I could feel that that was a very tangible part of the economy there. Likewise, Asheville also ranks the lowest out of the North Carolina cities that are listed in the um, economic freedom index for the city level. I think that should be concerning for the region. I think that a good way to address economic recovery there is first to focus on the economic freedom of Asheville and other areas in Western North Carolina because they are so contingent on those industries. One way to approach this is to say, um, you know, economic freedom matters in Western North Carolina as it does anywhere else. You could say, you know, for example, that, you know, what are the problems, what are the economic problems that people talk about in Western North Carolina? It's good paying jobs, it's affordable housing, it's good roads, it's broadband internet. And all of these things are economic goods that get produced better in a climate of good economic health than they do in a climate of bad economic health. And so our study would say Western North Carolina has as much at stake as anyone in maintaining a climate of good economic health and maintaining economic freedom for its people. Good. Is there anything else on the report that you would like to share with everyone? Yeah, I'm not sure how you would fit this in, but you know, the the the, the real policy prescription that we have here, um, it's it's something like a no net loss. The idea is, look, there are legit public uh, reasons and interests, not just safety, but other things for the government to go and say, look, you can't do that. You're not free to do that. You can't enter that brain surgery occupation unless you go to brain surgery school, okay? Um, there are good reasons for that. But then there's all these, um, uh, you know, that, that, that same rationale gets um, used and, and deployed in areas where the good reason isn't there. So, for example, you know, we do not have the same public safety concern with the barber profession as we do with the brain surgery profession. And we don't have it, um, you know, as much with the tour guide profession as we do with the barber profession. These areas where the state has a legitimate public interest in restricting economic freedom, policymakers need to do that. However, policymakers need to also recognize that they're diminishing economic freedom in the state. And by doing that, they're limiting future prospects for growth and prosperity. So then what? We're not going to undo the thing because it's necessary, but instead, why don't we look at our portfolio of economic policies and say, look, we had to reduce economic freedom over here because it was legit. Why don't we find an area over here to increase economic freedom at the same time in the same stroke of legislative, uh, you know, uh, legislative action um, and increase economic freedom in some areas where, you know what, there's not that big of a public interest at stake. We think that this should be a general policy rule followed down in Raleigh. And um, we think that this study gives the basis for, um, for, for making that claim, for saying that that should be the rule. So that's kind of the, um, that's kind of the, 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 the big picture in the subtext right now. And what we're hoping to do is build that out through these series of um, individual studies where, you know what, EMTs, we got to look at that. We got to look at re-regulating those guys because 
um, you know, they, they're more capable and they're needed for other things than we're allowing them to do right now. Um, and, you know, look, that's not deregulation, but, but definitely, you know, what kind of a world is it where we think that, um, you know, a legislation and a regulation that was written in 1976 or whenever it was, you know, still applies. We got to take a fresh look at these things and our study gives a roadmap. That's Dr. Edward Lopez of Western Carolina University's Center for the Study of Free Enterprise, speaking with me about a study on North Carolina's potential for economic recovery post-pandemic. He was joined by graduate student Emma Blair Fedison of George Mason University, who also worked on the study. You can find a link to it on the show page for this episode with our free mobile app or at bpr.org. We'll have more on the porch in just a moment. Thanks for joining us. This is BPR News Presents The Porch, a production of the BPR News Team. I'm Matt Bush. We end the show today by switching gears to talk about a community-based learning approach in Asheville that organizers are calling Education Justice. It's called REGAL, which stands for Relevant Education Grows All Learners. It's a framework that aims to support students of color by offering an inclusive learning space led by adults in their own community. Six students from Asheville City Schools meet regularly at the REGAL pod at Pisgaview Apartments. It's a public housing community in West Asheville. BPR's Cass Arrington spoke with leaders Cicely Rogers and Toshia Sitton about how they're encouraging and motivating their students during the pandemic. Well, I'm Cicely Rogers, and I'm part of Marvelous Math, and I'm also the worker at the PVA Pods. Well, my name is Toshia Sitton. Um, I work in the PVA Pods. Cicely here started um, working in the PVA Pod first and asked me if I wanted to be a part of it. I told her at the beginning I didn't know about that because um, I had a lot going on and just kind of wasn't in a mood to do it. But then when I got there to see what she was doing, um, I really wanted to join the program. I like what I do. Um, I really enjoy being there. Um, I lived in Piscoview for a very long time. I have three children and I raised them out there. Well, and I'm really excited and thankful that you were able to join this conversation because you both embody what is really special about the the Regal Pods. You know and care about the students that you're working with, and you bring all of this generational knowledge. We need to kind of rewind a little bit. Let's take some steps back because many listeners tuning in, this might be the first time they've ever heard of Regal. How, how would you sum it up? What is the program and what are you trying to accomplish? Okay, I'm going to let Cicely do this part because she the one started this program. Well, the Regal program is a program that we started trying to incorporate the children and, and the families in our community and a safe place for them, a place where they can feel comfortable, a place where the kids know that somebody cares. You don't really have to look like them because I have white, black. I mean, I have all races in my pod. And they all get treated the same. I have my own children in there. They get no special treatment. I'm fair. I'm trying to be their friend, you know. And with the three, the, me, Toshia, and Miss Terry, that we all work at 
in the um, pot. We all have something different that we bring to the table. Miss Tashia, she's an awesome artist. I draw stick figures. Miss <laughs> Terry, she's good with the boys. She's good with all of them, but she's really in there with the boys. The boys need problem, have a problem. She steps in, you know. Come on, man, let's do this, let's do that. Miss Tashia, she has her strengths. I have mine. With us working together, it's awesome. Yeah, it all kind of pulls together because, because like I was saying, like Cicely, she's more what she says, what she means. She really put down the effort and the, and the force. Like you're going to sit here and you're going to get this work done. I understand that you don't want to be here, but you don't understand we didn't want to wake up this morning either. But we are actually here to help you all get this work done. Just like we had two students in the class that uh, was getting really, really frustrated, and we recognized that they were actually they had um, learning disabilities. They had learning disabilities, so we seen that and made some paperwork for them. As far as paperwork for those two, we noticed that they weren't didn't know how. To write their ABCs or one, two, threes, and mostly they couldn't hardly recognize them. So um, we took how we was in school, um, no offense to the newer generation and how they do their work, but it works best in our eyes on how we did our work. Um, it's, very, it's easier for them to understand. It's easier for them to grasp the concepts of the work and everything. So the paperwork, you know, like when you in school and they had the lines, and they had A, B, C, D, and then they had the arrows going up, then down, then across. Then you trace it, then you rewrite it. And that's what I did by hand. I just took a white piece of paper and a ruler, and I just made that for these two students. And they actually getting better at it. And all the children in that pod is, has actually brought up every last one of their classes. So they, they went from a lot of a lot of bad work that they didn't do and they all is literally caught completely up and that's that's our goal so our goal is to make sure they pass um we want them to listen to practice to do homework just like they are in school what i think is striking and important about the work you're doing is an acknowledgement that black communities have the power and the knowledge to raise up the youth in this community and I don't know, and you can speak to this better than I can, if that's necessarily been the frame of thinking in the past. I'm going to say this, and I don't know how I'm going to say it, but I'm going to be honest, because um, what I have seen in the community is a lot of negativity. I was in Piscoview, and so I went through a lot. I went through the exact same things they went through. I'm still going through it. Um, I'm low income. I had a low income family. We relates very, very well. We understands what they're going through. Um, a lot of people really don't understand what these children go through, but we do because we see them every day and we live the life that they actually been living and seeing. Yeah, we do act like we they mamas, but I think it's needed. When you sit there and you just be really nice and no, don't do this and no, you need to be quiet. No, we say sit your tail down. Like, you need to sit down, and you need to do this work. You know, this is what you're here for. We want you to do your work. We want you to have A's, B's, C's, you know, A's and B's. Sit here, and let's get this work done. And we'll sit beside them. We'll, if they need help, we're going to sit with them the whole time to make sure that they get this stuff done. And I think that's what they want. They're not getting shown attention or the affection. I'm not going to say all, but I'm just saying... um, 
Yeah, I, I, it's kind of hard to explain. I just don't want to say it in the wrong way. Yeah, I think it really works. Um, I, uh, one of the parents said they would rather keep their children in the program um, because of how better she's actually been doing in school. Um, and we just really want our community to be better. Um, we just want people to not look at our community like they cannot be somebody when they are somebody. But I get emotional about it because... Go ahead and you speak. It's okay. It's always been there. Just got pushed to the side. I mean, as I was saying before, I think I'm the only one that wasn't going to let them push me to the side. I see the kids need it. I mean, my own grandson. And then there's just also been so much negativity um, in these communities, and it's not all negative. Um, there are children there that is very smart. There are children there that want to go to college. Um, there are children that want to learn, that wants to be somebody. Um, everybody's there is not bad. And we want people to see that these children really do care, and these children really want to be somebody. They want to go to college, but they just need the support. And so I'm a, we've been advocates for them and going to continue to be an advocate for the community and for them um, so they can continue to strive for the better. That's, we just want the community to be better. We want everybody to see that it can work. And we all need to pull together in order for it to happen. Me and Cicely, they can't be the only ones doing it. We know that racism is embedded in our country's education system. Obviously, we had segregated schools, but even after desegregation, up until today, the way things are taught marginalizes people, erases voices. And so just you being a neighbor or living in their community, they feel seen and heard and cared about. And that's a motivating factor. And one question I have, and maybe as mothers or grandmothers, or even just observing the students that you work with, I'm sure that there are well-intended educators in our community who hear this conversation and say, I'm not racist. I welcome everyone in my classroom. I'm a good, kind teacher. But maybe without their knowledge or awareness might be perpetuating stigmas or oppressive narratives in their classroom. Do you have any like concrete examples of ways you've seen that damage children? Yes, even right now. I have a student that's in my pod. And I've seen it from the time he started. He can be on the, you know, 830 the morning, get on Zoom. He's with his teacher. And she's teaching. And I see him. And hand up, hand up, hand up, hand up. And then he gets frustrated. We see a pencil go flying across the room. I'm like, what's wrong, babe? She keep ignoring me. I had a question I don't understand. Okay, let me sit down. Let's figure out what's going on. We have to literally get on there and talk to her. He didn't understand. He's getting upset. And then she would explain it to us, and then we explain it. We'll work with him. But he would have his hand up darn near the whole time, and she would not answer him. It ain't like she didn't see him. Or if he would unmute, she would mute him if he was trying to say something. And you were there to witness that. Yeah. And she's done it multiple times. The other kids are talking, this and that. But when it was him, no answer. She she keep muting me. She keep muting me. Okay. Let her, she can mute you. All his work is caught up. He making A's. 
right now. We don't need her. All she got to do is put the work out there. We'll get it done. Any questions that he, that he has, he asks us. What's your mission in all of this work? Like, what for you is a success? <laughs> to make it to a school, a real school, um, honestly, is needed. Um, it's, it's convenient. It's important. I feel that it should be a school. And that's just what we're trying to do. I do understand they in school, but they still not getting the help that they should be getting. And so while they are doing better where they are at, and if they're bringing up their grades and bringing up their assignments and getting their assignments completed, I don't think they should take them away from something that's actually helping them. And I'm really scared that if they do, then it's going to recycle back to the same thing and then they're going to fall back again. It's, it's just so amazing. It became to be like a little family, like a little school family. Um, uh, we do a lot for them. We cook for them. Um, we read with them. We, we, we do activities with them. Um, just like this past week, we did a really big Valentine's party for them. Not because it was Valentine's Day, though. If they wouldn't have caught their grades up or if they wouldn't have got the assignments up, then we wouldn't have had no party for them. But it was very deserving to do earned. this, and it was earned. And so we went out and took our own money and got some Valentine stuff so they can make for their parents. And so um, when they do good, we write notes on the board. We uh, bring them some kind of gift because I do understand how hard it is for them to catch up their grades when they're so far behind. I do understand how frustrating we can get, they can get, um... As long as we can get as long as we can get one child, two children ahead, I'm satisfied. I want to get all, you know, but if we can get them at least one or two, I, I, I'd be completely satisfied. But we just want these kids to know that they are black. Um, they are beautiful. They are strong. They can do anything they can put their mind to. And even though that we be discriminated on and... And I'm not saying by the color of our skin, but I'm saying also as low income people as well, because they also are discriminated on. I just want the kids to know life is life. Don't let nobody tell you, oh, you live in this particular area. You ain't going to never be nothing because I lived out there. And as long as I had a roof over my head and had food on my table and my kids had clothes, I cared less what anybody said about me because I knew what I was trying to do. I wanted my kids to go to school. I wanted my kids to be somebody. I wanted them to go to college. So I focused on my kids first. And then once I got them to where I got them, then I started focusing on me. It worked. They are doing excellent, you know. And then, like, I, I use the technique that I use for my kids on these kids as well. It ain't never hurt me. I graduated. I teach my own kids. I have a college graduate, too. My oldest son. I've got one that's a senior this year. And I got one that's in sixth grade. So I'm like, I'm still in it <laughs> with my own. So it's a never stop learning process. process. You learn something every day. So it's not like the kids learning from us because we definitely learning from learn, them. learn from them too. It's a good thing because you're learning different behaviors and you, you're learning why these kids getting upset. You, you, you just, that's the difference between what we use, the tools that we use in the pie. And we it, it works. It, it definitely works. Well, Cicely Rogers and Toshia Sitton, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you for having us. 
That was BPR's Cass Harrington speaking with Cicely Rogers and Toshia Sitton of the Regal Learning Pod at Pisgah View Apartments. It's a collaborative community effort supported by Asheville City Schools, the Asheville Housing Authority, UNC Asheville, and the Dogwood Health Trust. You can read more about the Regal framework with our free mobile app or at bpr.org. And that wraps up this episode of The Porch. The BPR news team is Helen Chickering, Cass Harrington, Lily Knepp, Matt Pikett, Corey Valancourt, Megan Kane, and me, Matt Bush. You can listen to episodes of The Porch, plus our other two podcasts, The Waters and Harvey Show and Going Deep Sports in the 21st Century, anytime with our free mobile app or through Apple or Google Podcasts. There's plenty there to help you pass the time as we wait out the end of the pandemic. And if you need something else, check out our first YouTube live episode of The Waters and Harvey Show from last week. It was about rebuilding building our culture of civic engagement and had an absolutely phenomenal panel of guests. You can find that on BPR's YouTube channel and make sure you subscribe to it to catch future videos from us. Hang in, everyone. It's been 11 months, and there's no way to have not been affected deeply by the trauma we've all felt since the beginning of this pandemic. We're still here for you, and you have always been there for us. Together, we can see this through. Stay safe. We'll see you on the porch again very soon. <laughs>